0: The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. of the royal names of the royal child. And if you have not already, do open your copy of God's Word to Isaiah chapter 9. That's where those names come from. It's on page 573 if you need a Bible in the rack. Uh, Students, if you have your student study Bible, it's on page 879. And kids, if you have your children's Bibles, it's on page 837. But let's everybody open up our copy of God's Word because we're turning to Isaiah 9. Uh, Still, as we see these royal names of the royal child. Now, uh, we heard him again, Handel's Messiah. They were very much popularized there, but a century and a half before uh, Friedrich Handel wrote that, uh, we have in the Scriptures the reality that Jesus' royal titles are called, according to Isaiah 9-6, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, it may be the case that you have heard those names. Uh, It may be the case that you have a passing familiarity with them. But, but if someone were perhaps, say, uh, at your family Christmas, to say, oh, what do those names mean? I would venture to guess that you know, we could kind of poke around a bit with some explanation, but we may stumble a bit. Uh, so we want to know not just what the names are, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We want to know what they are. but We also want to know what they mean and what they mean for us, as God's people who've received this gift of the Messiah called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So we want to come through this Advent season and be in the midst of this Advent season really with a growing and deepening sense of what God's Word means for us as it promises this wonderful Messiah for us. So last week, we saw that the Lord Jesus Christ is our wonderful Counselor, that He is the eternal and everlasting exalted source of all wisdom and knowledge, and that to be wise ourselves, we must walk in the ways of Jesus, our wonderful Counselor. This morning, we're considering what it means that He is the mighty God, still there in Isaiah 9, verse 6. So we want to hear God's Word. Let's first pray. We'll ask God's blessing upon the Scriptures and then hear it together. Gracious God, we... We turn now to Your Word, believing that here You speak to us the truth of the words of eternal life and that by the right and accurate reading and proclamation of it You might make wise Your people for salvation by Your Scripture. Lord God, would You come now, we pray, in the power of Your Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds as we sit under the reading and proclamation of Your Word that we might be a people submitted to Your truth bowing in humble reverence to You who reigns above. And here now as You speak to us, Lord, may we listen attentively. May we listen mindfully for our need of hearing this Word. And may we listen with great benefit and profit for our own souls and for that of our lives and our families as well. Lord, come now. Bless Your Word to Your people, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the Word of God, Isaiah 9, verse 1, and we'll be reading uh, through verse 7. Isaiah 9, verse 1, this is the Word of God. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. So let us continue to hear God's Word this morning. Thinking back, not quite so far as Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah is prophesying some five to 700 years before the birth of Christ. And of course, now in the year 2022, Christ is born some uh, 2,000 years ago. But a little bit shorter back in history is June 6, 1944. And the date itself uh, strikes some of you with the memory of what I'm speaking about. Dwight D. Eisenhower ordered the uh, invasion of the beaches of Normandy. Uh, And when he spoke to the troops uh, about that day, he used these words on what is now remembered by us as D-Day. He said to those some 5,000 ships, 150,000 soldiers invading five beaches, he said this, You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers in arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the eliminations of Nazi tyranny over oppressed people of Europe, and the security for ourselves in a free world. Dwight Eisenhower, as he speaks, He gives these words to to provide steel and courage and assurance. And notice the three things that he says by way of assurances and reminders to to put steel into the backbones of these brave warriors preparing for that invasion. He says, the eyes of the world are upon you, first of all. Secondly, the hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere are with you. Even though they don't stand with you, they are behind you. But he also says, thirdly, that you go in the company of our allies, brothers in arms on other fronts. He says, somebody else has already been and will continue to fight with you and alongside you. You have an ally. And in that, I think we see a beautiful echo of this gospel truth, don't we? That as we are about oftentimes a warfare of the Christian life and a struggle and a striving, we are reminded that there is someone else who fights alongside, in front of, and behind us. We have an ally. Dwight Eisenhower said to those truth, you have allies, but in Jesus Christ, we have a greater ally who fights with us and for us. That our courage and our victory lies in the hope and confidence that somebody else is powerfully and faithfully on our side. Who is He? Uh, The way in which uh, Dwight Eisenhower was inspiring those troops is in some degree the similar vein in which Isaiah is speaking the Word of God to the people of Israel. Because here in uh, Isaiah chapter 9, the people of God are facing the prospect of a mighty invasion from the north that was indeed going to overtake them. And that invasion that was going to overtake them was not going to be a perpetual reign by an enemy, but a temporary reign for the sake of captivity and exile. God permitted the armies from the north to invade Israel and send the people into a time of exile, a time of occupation, Promising that it would not be perpetual and infinite, that there would come a time when their exile would be ended and they could return home because someone was going to come and fight for them and defend them and provide them rescue and relief. That is the context of Isaiah chapter 9 as Isaiah speaks God's word to the people, saying, The darkness that you're going to be plunged into will not last forever because you who have walked in darkness, verse 2, you will see a great Light, And it is in this context that we find the promise of the Messiah given there in verse 6. Isaiah 9, verse 6, the prophet Isaiah says, For to us, to the people of God in distress and in darkness, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Just note that there in verse 6, that first part of it. For to us a child is born, for to us a son is given. Now ask yourself this question, doesn't that seem a bit redundant? Aren't all sons children? Why the double emphasis? For to us a child is born, for to us a son is given. Why the double emphasis? Well, because they are point of emphasis. In one sense, this Messiah is an heir to David's throne. A child is going to be born that's in the lineage of David to sit upon the throne and rule over us and defend us and protect us against all of our enemies. He is a child to be born, emphasizing he's born, right? He's born in the way everybody's born. There is a conception. There is a birth. This child to reign is in fact a child to be born. But He is not just a child born, He is also a son given. Where the child born emphasizes the humanity of the Messiah, the son given is an emphasis on the divinity of the Messiah as this son is not just a son of David, but God's own true son. The Messiah is a child born and a son given, truly man and truly God. And as we're focusing on these various titles of this Messiah, each one is really packed with meaning. Each one is packed with significance for the people of God to instill in them confidence and hope and peace so that they would not go into their period of exile and distress and darkness with hopelessness, but rather entering into that season with the confidence of full assurance of faith that God would indeed provide His Messiah. And that Messiah is the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this morning we're thinking about the Messiah's title as Mighty God. Now this might seem manifestly self-evident, what this title means. Mighty God means that He is Mighty God. Yes, of course, but there is always more than just what is on the surface with the Scriptures. That's why God's Word is so wonderful and rich and helpful to us. That He is Mighty means is an emphasis on the fact that He is a Deliverer. That this child to be born is one who would fight for His people. Mighty in the sense of engaging warfare. This Messiah who reigns is not some absent king who removes himself, sits enthroned, and then watches his people struggle, but rather a king who comes and engages, who fights and wins, who conquers and redeems. This is a Messiah who is going to secure a victory that his people can share in. Uh, the term mighty, gro- mighty God here uh, has a bit of muscle to it. So you should anticipate that this means exactly what it means in that it is a strong title. It is in fact actually a very masculine title because the word mighty is the Hebrew word gabor, which can be translated actually as manly or vigorous. It can be translated champion or hero. Mighty God, gabor in Hebrew. Actually, it's more than just the word givor because it's combined with the Hebrew word that we translate. There's two words. It's mighty God, and there are two Hebrew words, actually. It's the Hebrew word El, which means God, which is why you see the English God there. But the word El in Hebrew is oftentimes used in two words, two ways. In Hebrew, the title El could be translated as either lowercase g, God, which would be a reference to the gods of the nations who are idols and false gods. The word L could mean lowercase g, the gods of the nations, or the Hebrew word L could be translated capital G, God, to refer to the God of Israel, the God of the covenant, the one true and living God. And when in the Old Testament the name God is used with the Hebrew word L, it is always with an adjoining descriptor to further signify that our God, the God of the covenant, the God of Israel, is not like the gods of other nations, these false gods and idols, but our God is to be described in all these different ways with the word El and another word. So, for example, sounding familiar perhaps, you might know the term El Shaddai. That means the all-sufficient God. So God, El Shaddai, sufficient. These terms are descriptors of the one true God. Or also El Elyon, which means the most high God. El Olam, which means the everlasting God. In Genesis chapter 6, when Sarah sends off Hagar, Hagar speaks of God as El Rohi, the God who sees me. And from Isaiah 7 verse 14, one that we might also be familiar with, El Imanu, translated Emmanuel, God with us. So these descriptors speak of the character of God in additional ways to further distinguish Him from other false gods. So all that to say, our God is not like other false gods and idols. He is the one true God. And in Isaiah 9, verse 6, you have another one of these titles, El Givor, El Givor which means Mighty God. And mighty God confirms the implication of the other phrase, wonderful counselor, to say that this wonderful counselor is a supernatural counselor as God Himself. He does things that only God can do because the Messiah is God. This is the wonderful thing that Isaiah is saying. That the Messiah that is promised to God's people is a child. But this child is God Himself. What we're seeing is the reality that in the Old Testament, the people of God anticipated and hoped for a divine Messiah. Not just anybody to be their Messiah, not just anybody to rescue them, but God Himself, that God Himself was going to come and protect and defend and vindicate His own people. And the reason why we need to be so insistent about this is that ultimately we're talking about the divinity of Jesus Christ. We're talking about the fact that Jesus is God. Now you may be interested to know that the Hebrew word gavor can be translated many different ways, but there are some scholars of a particular bent and uh, worldview who prefer to translate this word merely as champion or hero. And when they translate it just as champion or hero, they remove any aspect of divinity from that term because they want to say, well you know, those Christians, they believed that Jesus, for them, was important, and for them was God, but really, at the end of the day, He was just another in a long line of people who makes that claim. Now, interestingly, there are many people still today who think that that's true as well. They hear the claims of Jesus, and they file them away with all the other claims of every other major worldview or religion. Or they think perhaps that they can take their pick from a buffet of things they like about Jesus and dismiss the things that they don't like. But Isaiah is prophesying 700 years before Jesus saying that the child to be born is the mighty God. God Himself. Not just a great hero, but God Himself. Because wherever you find that same word, givor, which we translate here as mighty, every time you see it in the Old Testament, it's always a reference to God Himself. Every single time. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 10, 17, Moses writes, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Also, Jeremiah says, You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God! Every time the Hebrew word givor is used in Scripture, it is with reference to God Himself who is described as strong and great and indeed this term mighty. This term and title Mighty God is a description of God's own strength and matchless glory and infinite value and might. So, the big challenge then is, in verse 6, how is it, that the same one who is the mighty God can be said to be a child, right? On the surface, this does not make sense. And still, in the way many people evaluate it today, they ask the question, how is it that a child can be mighty God? And they're trying to, to do the arithmetic on the whole Christmas story and say, this doesn't make sense. It cannot be possible or even conceivable that the same person could be mighty God and a child born. It doesn't make sense that the babe in a manger can be the everlasting God unless there is a union of the divine natures with the human nature in the same person. But dear friends, that is exactly what we believe as Christians. We have confessed as a Christian church for 2,000 years the wonder of what we call the Incarnation. We marvel at this truth, sing it, and believe it, and confess it, that Jesus Christ in His one person is two united natures of humanity and divinity. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, incarnate deity, pleased as men with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. There is no other system of religion in the world that has a doctrine like this. There is no other worldview of philosophy or system of religious teaching that has at its core the incarnation of God Himself to take upon our human flesh. So how is it true? We assert that true eternal divinity is inseparably joined to true humanity in the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus just doesn't appear to be human. He is man. And He doesn't just claim to be God. He is God. What we're talking about is the fact that Jesus Christ is utterly unique, infinitely compelling, and inescapably interesting. Jesus Christ is wonderfully interesting, wonderfully compelling and utterly unique. Listen to what Calvin says about this very reality that we have a Savior who is Himself fully God and fully man, who is a child born and indeed mighty God. Calvin says this, If we find in Christ that He is only a man, nothing but flesh and nature, then all of our praise would be foolish and vain, and our hope would rest on an uncertain and insecure foundation. You see, he's saying, if Jesus is just a man, if He's just a child born, then there's no reason for you to worship Him. There's no reason for you to sing songs about Him. There's no reason for you to sing Christmas carols and celebrate Christmas and come to church. If Jesus is just a man, there's no point about being a Christian. But, if He shows Himself to be God, and the mighty God, then we may now rely upon Him with safety. With good reason does He call Him mighty, because our contest is with the devil, death, and sin. Enemies far too powerful for us that if we were to fight them, we would immediately be vanquished. But we have a Savior who is a mighty Savior who fights the battles that we would not win. Who fights the battles that we would surely lose And He fights them and wins. When death is like a yawning grave looking at every single one of us that would claim us, we cannot fight death ourselves and win We would merely die, but Jesus Christ is the mighty God as the Savior who fights death in the grave and wins, who destroys the devil and sin. These things which would vanquish us, He Himself is able to engage and claim victory over and for us on our behalf. That's the good news of the Gospel, that Jesus is the mighty God who goes forward on our behalf to do what we are required to do but fail to do. He does for us. So you need a Savior who is a mighty God. Because if He's just a man, then He's just like you. And He's just like you in your inability to vanquish sin and the grave. But He is just like you in the sense that He is man, but He's also totally unlike you because He is also the mighty God who's able to fight and deliver even you from sin and the grave. So, as we consider the reality of D-Day, June 6, 1944, we, we recognize historically that that was a moment in which the Axis powers were effectively broken, but the final conflict wasn't finished until V.E. Day, May 8, 1945. Almost a whole year later, it took until the final defeat happened. And we think about this reality in the Christian life because at the cross and resurrection, it was, in a sense, D-Day where Christ has claimed the victory, but we are still on this side of the final full victory of Christ's return. And we live between the reality of Christ's resurrection and His second advent. We live in a time where certain victory has already been achieved but the full and final victory is still yet awaited to come. So it is between D-Day and V-E-Day. So it is between the resurrection and the second appearing. So that means that as a Christian believer, you live between the realities of Christ's resurrection and His appearance. And you have Him as a mighty God and Savior and Deliverer. So the question to ask is, What do you do? What do you do when you feel and perceive that you are under threat? What do you do when you are anxious and fearful and afraid and sorrowful, What do you do, Christian believer, when you feel at threat to be overcome by anxiety and fear and loss and the grave? Where do you turn, Christian believer, when you find yourself living between these two realities, being called to live by faith in a kingdom that you cannot see? Where do you turn? Jesus says in John 16.33, I tell you the truth, in this world you will have trouble. I said this in Sunday school. If you're someone who was sold the notion that as a Christian your life will always be easy, you were lied to. Jesus himself says, You will have trouble. But he also says this Take heart, for I have overcome the world because He is the mighty God, the victorious champion, the deliverer to defeat sin and the devil and the grave and vanquish these powers for all time so that we who find ourselves living between the realities of the resurrection and His second coming can have the confidence that our Savior is the mighty God. So, in a world that is full of loss and loneliness and hurts and struggles that is unfortunately... All too commonly amplified during the holiday season, right? These things that sit to us tenderly are oftentimes amplified at the holidays. No matter the sorrow, no matter the heartache, no matter the darkness, the gospel says that light has come and that light has shone on us in the darkness. And that light is Jesus Christ, the mighty God, whom no one is greater than, no enemy, no force. Not even death, nor sin, nor hell, or the grave is greater than Jesus Christ, who is the mighty God. And do you know what the good news is, especially as a Christian? The good news is is that this mighty God who has come to deliver us from all of our enemies and then ascended to heaven's throne has not left us void of the confidence of His victory. Because the reason why Christian believer, He gives to you the visible signs and seals of the Gospel in the sacraments is so that you would taste and touch and see and smell and be reminded of the confidence of Christ's victory over sin and the grave and hell and Satan so that as you take and eat these common realities, you can say that my Savior is the mighty God, the One who has already overcome, and I through faith overcome in Him. So dear friends, if you find yourself today dragging your feet along the paths of obedience, or perhaps weary or struggling or afraid or lonely or anxious or fearful, wherever you are, Jesus Christ says, in Me you have the victory In Me you overcome, and in Me you know that I am the mighty God, Christ says. So, dear friends, lift up your hearts, because our Savior is the mighty God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank You and we praise You that You've given Your Son to us and for us, so that being united to Him, we might know the mighty God to be our Savior. Lord, we pray that as we come to You in preparation for the table, that you might stir in our hearts an overwhelming gratitude for all that Christ has done for us. Lord, bless us now as we continue to worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.